Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We're doing a different and very special episode today. The last few months have seen a flurry of books on the Trump administration, and given Trump's successful efforts to keep critical information about his tenure bottled up from public view, the books provide a sort of rough first draft of history of the Trump presidency in all its pathologies. The books have various strengths, but one has garnered the most attention, I Alone Can Fix It by Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker. The book debuted as the number one on the New York Times bestseller list and has stayed atop ever since, and with good reason. It's a panoramic view of Trump's disastrous last year in office, beginning with the pandemic and ending with the insurrection and his graceless exit. More, it's full of new revelations, including some stunners from the 140 plus officials the two interviewed. And on the writing level, it's a page turner with lucid and vivid prose. So we're really fortunate today to devote our entire episode to a discussion of the book with its two authors, namely Carol Lennig, an investigative reporter at the Washington Post and a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner. She's an on-air contributor to NBC and MSNBC. This is her third book and second on the Trump presidency. Welcome, Carol, to Talking Feds. Thanks for having us, Harry. And Phil Rucker, the White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, a Pulitzer winner as well. He's also a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, and he previously wrote with Carol, a very stable genius covering the first years of the Trump presidency. Earlier this year, Phil received the Aldo Beckman Award from the White House Correspondents Association for Excellence in Covering the Administration. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Phil Rucker. Thank you, Harry. Good to be with you. All right. Now, you guys have written a 500-plus page tour de force about Trump's catastrophic final year in office, and we could devote 10 episodes to it. Let's at least touch on the topic that dominates the first half of the book, the pandemic, before moving on to the election and its aftermath. So just a couple things about the pandemic. It's a consensus that Trump's bungling of the virus response was a major factor leading to his defeat. You document how Trump continually rebuffed any advice to follow the lead of scientists, and especially Anthony Fauci, but embracing the scientists, as one of his cabinet members told him, could have allowed him to claim credit if it succeeded and deflect blame if it didn't. And he's a guy whose North Star, or maybe only star, is winning re-election, as you've documented. So why didn't he rebuff the scientists when it could have been a strong political strategy? You know, Harry, this is such a compelling point because when Phil and I reported out the first book, A Very Stable Genius, Literally, we didn't realize this, but sources were foreshadowing the danger to come. They were telling us, we're so lucky we haven't had a real crisis yet in this presidency because Donald Trump's toolkit is not up to a real crisis. They were really quite on pins and needles about that potential. And of course, they were imagining a war, a national security threat. They didn't envision a massive lethal pandemic. Donald Trump's method of governing, if you can call it governing, is 
really about winning the news cycles, making sure that the optics look good, at least to some subset of people. If he can argue, things are great. This COVID, it's really nothing. We've got it nailed. We've got it covered. We've got it under control. It's going to be like a miracle. It's all going to go away. As long as he could consistently say that and have people believe it, he felt like that was working for him. He felt like that was keeping the market from tumbling down, which he viewed as his number one ticket to reelection. Again, as you point out well, his North Star. But unfortunately, that optical PR spin toolkit absolutely failed in a real crisis, and particularly in a public health crisis, because what people needed was consistent messaging. They needed information that was factually grounded. They didn't need spin. In order to protect lives, they needed real information and data and advice that didn't change from day to day uh, between, you know, maybe we'll inject bleach to you don't need masks to hey, I've got this great plasma that's going to keep you safe. He couldn't switch toolkits. That's the simple answer. And the big part of his toolkit is having to be rosy and a winner at any given time. Is that right? So he was thinking of the next 24 hours rather than a three-month advice to the country. That's exactly right. You know, Donald Trump is not a long-term strategic planner or thinker. He is very much someone who lives in the moment and for the moment. And so the decisions he made governing had to do with how to win the next news cycle, how to get the big headline the next morning, how to have a good week. During the pandemic, he was thinking constantly about how to improve his political standing and his popularity with an eye, of course, to the November 3rd election. But he wasn't even thinking about what he could be doing in February and March that would pay dividends all the way down the road in the fall. He wanted the dividends paid tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And so it was a lot of short-term thinking that, according to the health experts in the government, really impaired and infected the federal response to the lethal pandemic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And also something you display is a way of governing by anecdote that a friend told him. Laura says, Coronique works, so that's good enough. You know, we think of presidents generally as changing in office, aging, getting gray hair. You've covered him and done another book. Was there anything that the pandemic challenge revealed to you about Trump as a person or leader that hadn't fully registered before? Had he changed at all or did you see any change in the time you covered him? You know how people, as they age, some of their worst qualities get more exaggerated? (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to make that exact parallel here, but I feel like the pandemic revealed in even more bitter and higher relief the degree to which Trump didn't really have empathy for other people, including Americans, his constituency. I think one of the most striking takeaways from our reporting for this second book was how panicked and anxious senior government leaders were, including those who had signed up because precisely they wanted to help Donald Trump execute his agenda, right? They were huge supporters of his, but how on razor's edge they were about the degree to which Donald Trump was willing to put human lives at risk for the short-term political gain. Here's just one example that I didn't think about in real time when we were reporting, but 
all of the sources who came to us from this medical community stressed it over and over again. If the president had used his bully pulpit and his relationship with President Xi in China to press for a CDC team to go into China and Wuhan to study the virus, if he had done that in January, February, March, we wouldn't have been behind the eight ball. The CDC and the Health and Human Services Department would not have been so in a shadow of not understanding what this virus was. It wasn't like SARS. It was different. It was infinitely more transmissible person to person. It had an amazing morphology. And if they had gotten inside the country with Trump's help, it's it's clear to me, and they've persuaded me that many thousands of lives would have been saved. Yeah, the feeling that comes through is, Trump is Trump, and he's just this fixed force with many, many defects and pathologies. And as you write, the basic boundaries of who he is and how he leads were already pretty well known. So the variables become the people, you know, around him. All right. I wanted to move from the health and safety cataclysm to the political catalysm of the election and its aftermath. So let's start with Election Day, even though there were harbingers of what eventually happened in tweets before then. The team seemed surprisingly upbeat, as you portray it on 11-3 itself. Trump, in fact, seems less assured than many of them. He tells Senator Graham he could maybe lose. He asks November 4th what went wrong. But I wanted to zero in on this 2 a.m. speech he gave that you document very carefully. And it seems like he wasn't sure whether to go out or not. Giuliani says go out and declare victory. Anyway, he does go out at 2 a.m. And basically, it reads almost as if he's extemporizing. We were getting ready to win this election then. Frankly, we did win. So will we go into the U.S. Supreme Court? So my question is, do you see this as the very moment when he kind of stumbles onto the big lie and goes all in? Was this where the die was cast? Or given who he is, was the big lie sort of always inevitable? I do think that's the moment where the die was cast in terms of the big lie. But I also think, looking back, he was laying the foundation for it months before the election. And in that sense, it was perhaps inevitable. Trump had been casting doubt about the integrity of mail-in balloting and telling people that mail ballots couldn't be counted, could be corrupted, that the process may not be fair, that the results may not be accurate. He was creating the atmosphere and the environment, at least in the minds of his core supporters, for contesting the election if he were to lose or fall short, which of course is what ended up happening. But I think it was election night when he decided to go full throttle with the big lie. And it was partly because he couldn't bring himself to accept that he was losing and was behind in some of those key states. But it was also because he was being egged on by Rudy Giuliani. And Trump is someone who is looking for advisors to tell him what he wants to hear, even if what he wants to hear is not accurate or legal, or in this case, constitutional or democratic, lowercase d, democratic. But Rudy Giuliani was there and was telling him exactly what he wanted to hear and giving him hope that overturning the election results was not only possible, but perhaps even plausible, and giving him reason to believe that the evidence would be found, that the Department of Justice could get to the bottom of it, that the lawyers would bring forth all the evidence of fraud to get judges to reverse the results somehow, and that Trump would be, before Inauguration Day, assured 
sort of that second term. That was the fantasy, and Giuliani seeded it in the president's mind, and of course others did as well in the days that followed. But I think election night was really consequential because that's when Trump decided to go all in with the big lie because I think he saw a realistic exit ramp, a realistic way for him to win that second term. Is that your sense too, Carol? And it has an almost from the hip quality, that actual speech where he kind of comes around to the big lie, never to loosen his hold on it for the next couple months. Well, I agree that he was building a case for it beforehand. Remember, this is a man who in 2016 said that if he lost to Hillary Clinton, that something was wrong with the election. So it was just part of a mantra with him. There was no way he could actually lose. His children actually said almost identical things, mimicking their father. There's no way we lose to this guy. So he was building a case for it. But I think one of the most interesting moments in this period is, is like two bookends. One, Bill Barr, we learned, privately calls the Secretary of Defense the night before the election and says, hey, word to the wise, just want to let you know, I heard from some White House sources that Trump's planning to declare victory before the votes are all counted, plans to declare it that night. And in a way, that's sort of no duh. We kind of saw him plotting that. But it's interesting because he was getting advice from his pollsters about Red Mirage, right? That by nighttime, it would be great for Trump. By morning, it might be really bad for Trump, which is exactly how it played out. And so if he declared victory at the crest of the Red Mirage, all would be good. The fact that Barr was warning the Secretary of Defense, hey, just want you to know this might happen, tells me that they were on tenterhooks for something bad to happen. And presumably that's Pat Cipollone, White House counsel probably, who spoke with Barr I want to get to both Barr and Giuliani, two fascinating figures in the book. But let me just get to the general point that in the weeks following, you lay out at some of really the biggest revelations in the book. And you talk a number of times about how revelatory it was to you guys. You would come out of interviews and be both stupefied and high-fiving each other for the rich information you've gotten. But you lay out a bifurcation in government between the guardrails, bar among them, and the enablers like Giuliani. Here's my first question, though. You know, it seems to me there's a job description in government for the person who keeps crazies from getting the ear of the president. Trump would listen to however low it got, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani. But don't we have a total dereliction here by the chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And don't we have to count him as almost the enabler in chief to let these people in the door and whisper to him? And if so, is that fecklessness or is he part of the bad guy enabler set as well? Meadows was certainly an enabler. It's not quite our place to assess whether he was feckless, (laughs) but you can do that, Harry. But he enabled and facilitated the big lie in a pretty dangerous way. It was Meadows who you know, served as the chief of staff, which is traditionally the gatekeeper role in the White House. It's that person's responsibility to help control what information the president receives, who has time with the president, which is, of course, his or her most valuable commodity. And Meadows chose to open the doors wide for not just Rudy Giuliani, but for Sidney Powell, the conspiratorial lawyer, for Mike Lindell, the founder of MyPillow, who came in with his own conspiracies about fraud, as well as his own ideas for changes in the intelligence infrastructure in the country, and a lot of other, frankly, kooks who were feeding the president baseless lies about election fraud and getting his hopes up 
making him think that what they were talking about was real and more importantly, had a real chance of affecting the outcome of changing the election results. And that's what got the president so spun up all through the month of December and in the run up to the January 6th insurrection. And even if Meadows wasn't personally advancing these conspiracies in the president's mind, although we do have some reporting that he advanced some of them, he was facilitating it all. His fingerprints are on everything, and he was responsible for letting those people have access to the president and bestowing his credibility on them. I'd add one more thing that's interesting to us about Mark Meadows enabler-in-chief, but also talking out of both sides of his mouth on a regular basis. Unlike previous chiefs of staff, here was a person who was telling the president, yes, 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 sir, yes, you did win the election. Here are all the examples. But he was telling Jared Kushner and others who came in and other advisors as they came in, you know, I'm working on the president to get him to concede. I know a peaceful transfer of power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's important. And so there was this very sad split screen in the White House, which you can't really ever imagine happening in another presidency. Jim Baker, right, is not going to be telling lower functionaries something different than what he's telling the president. Meadows was also the person who let people in who basically called the coronavirus a hoax and let them say that in the Oval Office, let them say that in the West Wing news conference room. So in lower press, he allowed a lot of things that weren't factual to become the pronouncement of the Trump administration. And when push came to shove, it was really out of control. His, what could he do? call Ivanka, please go in and try to talk him down. And Phil, I don't mean to be flip when I say feckless. I shouldn't be. What I'm saying is it seems to me he has to know that his role is not to let Sidney Powell spend another half hour in there as he did. And I think even today, flashing forward, he's a little bit in the Trump forever camp that's still a force on the political scene. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Among the biggest 
blockbuster revelations in your book is the recognition that we might have come a lot closer than we thought to really some kind of success by Trump that would have spelled possibly the end of the democracy. So yes, he fastened on to the big lie. My question is, do you think apart from that, he had a concrete game plan in the weeks before, say, January 6th, or was it just so chaos and hope to exploit it one way or another? He did have a game plan in that he wanted the election results overturned. He also wanted to sow chaos and weaken Biden and stoke the kind of anger and grievance of his supporters. But it was all aimed at an ultimate goal, which was to stay in power and remain the president for a second term. And he kept looking ahead on the calendar, Trump did, for the opportunities, right? So in the immediate aftermath of the election, the issue was the legal challenges in court to try to change the count, stop the count, reverse the count. Then heading into December 14th, it was try to influence the electoral college proceedings in each of the states before the state legislatures would have the electors certified. And then after that, after the certification happened on December 14th, the next big date was January 6th, when the joint session of Congress, led by the vice president, was to formally officially certify the results, the electoral college results that were coming up from each of the states. And so that was the next target of opportunity for Trump. And so, you know, yes, he was trying to sow chaos, but it was all towards this broader strategic aim, which was to overthrow the democratic process and manufacture a different election result, which constitutionally is not something that can be done and legally was not something that was permissible. But in Trump's mind, it seemed like something that was still achievable nonetheless. And with the right luck and chaos and political dynamics that Trump could have manufactured for himself, it may well have happened. You know, I guess I'm asking more about tactics. Did he actually have in his mind, and we're learning more about things that were germinating in the Department of Justice, among others at the time, I'll get Pence to disavow, we'll go to the state legislatures, they'll use this cockamamie argument that Rudy Giuliani says works, then we'll go to the Supreme Court. Or was it more just keep spouting the big lie and get people all riled up and hope for the best? Yeah, it feels to me like just as the president in 2020 didn't have a long-term vision and strategy for how to combat a terrible virus and how to really think about it holistically, what was best for the nation and for the American people, he didn't have a real long-term strategic chess game in mind for this, grasping at every opportunity, every limb that he saw along the riverbank, everything that presented itself, he was like, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I can do that. I think back to a moment when he's supposed to be focusing on how to get the vaccines administered properly and make sure that there's really a full court press by the federal government working with the counties and states to get shots in the arms of Americans as quickly as possible. Again, minutes count, days count. That is that many less people that are infected and transmit it to someone else. But instead of really focusing on that, which he can't bring himself to do, he is focusing on getting Meadows to ring up two or three different fairly low-level people in the Georgia election bureaucracy to figure out where to find this number of votes and toss out those that don't have exact signatures that match precisely to re-review them and toss certain ones. 
this is where his brain is at that time. But it's replaced by another plan later in December and then replaced again by another one. A remarkable detail that you report is the president of the United States in the call to Raffensperger basically calls 10 times before he gets through. This is <laughs> All right. So it's clear from the book and clear from the interviews you've done that you guys were thunderstruck and appalled at how close we came. And that was something that after you'd finished your reporting, you were more persuaded of than before. So explain, why do you think we dodged a bullet that came closer to us than people realized? Well, you're right that we were really struck by this because we thought we knew what was going on in that those months between the election and, and the January 20th inauguration of Joe Biden. And yet in doing this deeper reporting for the book, we learned there were so many more moments of danger behind the scenes and so much so that top officials at the Pentagon, including General Mark Milley, were concerned that there could actually be a coup, that the president could use the power of the military to hang on to power despite the result of the election, despite the will of the people, which is core to our democracy. And there were very real possibilities that the democracy could fall. And that seems like a really big statement to make. It's not that big if you think about what was going on. In December, you know, we learned in this reporting that President Trump, along with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, were considering a plan to remove Gina Haspel as the CIA director and also to move Christopher Wray as the FBI director and replace both of them with partisan Trump loyalists, people who would basically do whatever the president wanted. That would have given Trump a hands-on operational control in the CIA, the largest intelligence agency in the government, and in the FBI, an essential federal law enforcement agency. In addition, he had loyalists who were in very senior roles in those final months at the Pentagon, at the Defense Department, who could have exerted some operational control over what the military was doing. And taken all three of those together, Trump would have had a lot of forces marching to the beat of whatever tune he hummed out. And that's what gave Milley so much fear. The CIA and FBI plots didn't actually happen, but they were being planned and they came very close to happening. And those are just some of the examples of what was creating so much fear of a, of a coup and, and a true turn towards authoritarianism in the final weeks. You know, my jaw and Phil's jaw were almost on the table when we were sitting with people for seven, five and eight hours in their offices, their dens, various places. And we were hearing about an effort by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to plot privately with the chairman, General Milley, how would they block Donald Trump from an illegal, immoral, unethical, dangerous deployment of the military? They were, of course, envisioning a couple of things. One was maybe he'd try to strike Iran to create distraction and chaos that would make the country fearful and therefore bring more power to himself. They could conceive, because Milley was worried about it, about him getting his hands on the guys with the guns, as Milley told confidants, to try to wrest control and avoid a peaceful transfer of power. Both of those things freaked them out to the degree that guys who've seen a lot of combat end up meeting privately to talk about how they can serially and slowly resign if they get such an order basically to throw their bodies in front of Donald Trump's will. Yeah, I mean, Milley is, was a 
previously almost unknown figure who does emerge as, a, as really heroic. And it does seem as if the military, by and large, was going to have no part of, of the, the sort of coup that other strongmen have done. On the other hand, you know, something that eventually winds up in the Supreme Court with some crazy ruling empowering state legislatures, that you can really imagine a universe where that happens. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million healthcare supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. I did want to focus in on two characters, a guardrail and enabler, who are really interesting and come off, I think, different than we'd understood them before, starting with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, I think it's Barr says that he's really the, the responsible figure for the first impeachment. And now, by all the crap that he was talking in the Ukraine, and so now he comes off as the Siago of the whole drama with the contempt for truth, always urging the most aggressive path, and Trump eventually puts him in charge. Do you agree that he was the sort of tip of the spear that Trump was u- using after at least few weeks had passed from the election? Absolutely. Trump was leaning on Rudy Giuliani more and more as the weeks ticked by at the end of 2020. And you know, largely displaced his campaign lawyers and the Republican Party's lawyers to instead go all in on what Rudy Giuliani and his associate Jenna Ellis, as well as Sidney Powell, were concocting in terms of their legal strategy. And we saw some of this play out on television. Remember, Giuliani and Ellis were doing kind of a roadshow where they went to Arizona and Pennsylvania and different key states to make presentations to state legislative bodies. And Giuliani also appeared in some courts. And the arguments they were making were laughable, according to virtually every credible election lawyer. They were not rooted in any... (laughs) You're one of them, Harry. (laughs) They were not rooted in fact or constitutional argument or the law. They were just these concocted theories about election fraud. But they were saying, and Trump was watching it on television, exactly what the president wanted to hear them saying, which was why Rudy Giuliani, why his stock had been rising so high in Trump's mind, because he finally had a lawyer who was going to be his bulldog and go out there and fight for it, even if what he was saying was disgracing his own legacy and reputation. And in our book, we actually have an interesting conversation that Rudy Giuliani had with Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor. But Giuliani and Christie have been friends for years, predating Trump's presidency, of course, as you know, the former New York mayor. And Christie was the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, and they dealt with each other. And Christie had basically called 
the the legal argument a national embarrassment on television and Giuliani was upset and called Christie and confronted him about it and they had a rather heated and hostile conversation and it by the way was the last time they've spoken it was basically the end of their friendship but at one point Giuliani said he doesn't care about legacy he said you know f legacy that's for when you go in the grave i'm paraphrasing here but his point was i don't care what this does to my reputation and my legacy i'm going to fight for the moment, and the moment is right now, and, and the moment is Donald Trump. And that gives you, I think, a window into Giuliani's mindset in those months after the election. What a mysterious and steep fall it was. You also have a great scene in the book where he's in court, and he's asked something that any first-year law student would know the answer. What is the standard of review here? And he literally doesn't understand what the judge is saying. It was, I think, the time when a lot of their establishment Republicans were trying to run from him fast, like Christie. And so let me move now to Bill Barr, with respect to whom I have a, a complicated <laughs> history. But it really seems to me that the portrait that emerges from the book goes very strongly in the other direction. It's not only on the last few days. Here's specifically what I wanted to point out. He kept the secrets many times, and he was strong against Trump. He protected Chris Ray's job. But what most struck me is a passage you have where it makes clear that Delaware's attorney's office was investigating Hunter Biden, and he never told Trump. Now, this is basically the reason Trump was impeached the first time was just to get the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, to say there might be an investigation. Here you have your own Department of Justice. Couldn't be a stronger kind of red meat line for, for campaign rallies. And Barr never supplied it. So do you think that some reevaluation of the storyline is due now? I feel like Barr came across in the, this deeper excavation as far more complicated than we realized in real time. Definitely, Harry, I think that that's key. Doesn't wipe away all the things he did that made alumni and current members of the Department of Justice, who all believed in an objective lady justice, Crin, doesn't change some of the things he did, including leaning into U.S. attorney's offices in different places to try to defend Donald Trump's friends and give him good talking points, political talking points. I mean, he was a political ideologue who wanted to help Trump get reelected. But yes, a reassessment of just how much he himself was trying to be a guardrail, how he was trying to stop Donald Trump from a couple things. One, which he thought would lose him the election, right? He goes to Donald Trump and warns him, you're going to lose if you keep doing this crazy stuff about COVID. You've got to have a consistent message. He tries to prevent Donald Trump from consistently insisting on sicking active duty military on American citizens who are exercising their First Amendment rights to protest the wrongful death and killing of a Black man and one in a long series that have not been properly addressed. Barr also doesn't give, and I think you said this perfectly, doesn't give Trump the red meat about Biden. He purposely walls that off from Donald Trump at Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office is investigating because he knows what catnip it'll be to him. He's dealt with it day in and day out. The president saying, why didn't you prosecute Comey? You know, he leaked confidential information when he, through his professor friend in Columbia, gave this 
memo to the New York Times. And why haven't you jailed Andrew McCabe? He talked to the media and that's treasonous. It really isn't. And no grand jury was going to indict him. But Barr was intimately familiar with how Donald Trump would harness that information. And he was afraid of doing it. He hoped something would happen. He wanted to see what the investigation, what fruits it would bear, but he did not want Trump involved. I think complicated is a really good word here because it's certainly true. The stuff he did at the beginning, even, you know, I, I think there's no way around it, the dishonest characterization of the Mueller report, this doesn't wipe out, but then everything else you report here does come as a surprise. And I, I think maybe there are just certain things he came into office, maybe the Mueller report and the whole effort was one of them with a visceral distaste for. And then also, of course, he is a good Republican. So he was willing to steamroll the career staff a lot. And yet, when you sit down with him in Mar-a-Lago, Trump, the very first thing he says, basically in the first sentence, he talks about Luther, and then he just comes right out of the box and is bitter about Bill Barr. Yeah, it just really struck both Phil and me that he is so disappointed in Bill Barr for not doing a proper, and I put quotes around it, investigation of the election fraud. The reason Barr resigned was because on December 1, he had the guts, after conferring with Mitch McConnell, to say to a reporter who he knew would publish it, there is no evidence of substantive election fraud that would change the results. And so what's intriguing about that is Trump is beside himself. Oh my God, the attorney general just confronted my whole theory. He just, you know, poured cold water on this. He summons him to the Oval when he realizes he's in the White House and dresses him down like he's never dressed him down. And Barr engineers a kind of careful exit, realizing that they're never going to get over that. And indeed, Trump has never gotten over it. Yeah, and a perfectly timed exit, as it turns out, with all the messes that come up later. All right. So let's zero in then on the big day on January 6th and what your take is on what Donald Trump is doing. Because I was really struck by this and I don't think we're fully aware yet and, and we need more shadings. But the way you portray it, Trump is almost isolated and sort of self-absorbed. And it's not as if he's some maestro calling his the troops out into the field. He's, he's just riveted to the TV like a 14-year-old and doing nothing. But I wanted to ask you about one thing in particular. And there is a quote that you have from an aide, an unidentified aide. And this is on page 465 of the book. It says, Trump thinks he's riveted. There's no more beautiful sight. He was happy, recalled this aide, quote, then it turned violent and he thought, oh, crap, that's a hell of a sentence. And, you know, if I were defending Donald Trump at trial, I would be putting that guy on the stand right away. Now, it's, of course, in isolation and, and different from other strains of things we think. But is that your best understanding? And, of course, we're kind of groping our way to the facts that Trump, when it turned violent, was surprised and displeased. You know, it's a little more complicated than that. And it also is worth keeping in mind, we all have different definitions for what violent is, right? So when he turned violent, is it 
when the rioters first breached the outer barricades outside the Capitol, or was it when somebody lost their lives and shots were fired inside the Capitol building? Those are two very different stages of violence. Our best understanding of how Trump reacted is that he was watching in real time on television and he liked what he saw. He loved seeing thousands of his supporters storming the Capitol. He liked that they were waving his flag. He liked that they were wearing his red Make America Great Again caps. He liked that they were doing exactly as he had implored them to do, which was converge on Washington on this day and march on the Capitol in a show of force to try to intimidate lawmakers into casting votes that would overturn the election and give him a second term despite having lost the election. That was Trump's goal. That's what he wanted from his people. And they were delivering exactly what he wanted. He didn't realize that there was anything awry and didn't have any concerns until it became truly violent. And we're actually not sure whether he was really concerned about, you know, people being hurt there or if he was more concerned that this could blow back on him, that the violence in his name could be a messy situation for him to have to deal with from a public relations standpoint. But we do know from our reporting that it took two hours for his advisors, including his daughter Ivanka and the chief of staff Mark Meadows to persuade the president that he had to issue some sort of statement to his supporters to tell them to stand down, to tell them to go home and to stop being violent. And uh, even he, then it was a total half. Yeah. And, half and, statement, right. And it took multiple tries and multiple statements before he would ever utter those words on the video that came out from the Rose Garden. And he was just so resistant and reluctant to telling his supporters to stop. It it really begs the question of whether he was actually deeply concerned about the violence or he just sort of recognized the political peril that it could have for him personally. And there's the phone call that you document to McCarthy where he he certainly sounds like it. So, Carol, do you have a take on this? Is that one statement that struck me maybe just a sort of stray impression that is very rebuttable? We have to deduce based on the facts in front of us. And so in the book, we report exactly as Phil described that his reaction was, "Uh uh-oh, He wasn't, oh crap, when people were committing felonies and breaking through police lines on the outer barricades of the Capitol. He wasn't, oh crap, when they were climbing onto the inaugural platform set up for the future President Biden. And when he finally did go, oh my goodness, there's violence, oh crap, it's not like he leapt to action. So I think we can deduce that he wasn't concerned enough about the lives on that Capitol grounds, including the vice presidents, to do very much. Right. I mean, he never even asked about him. Yeah, um, didn't ask about Pence. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So you guys got a gift of like the greatest epilogue imaginable when having rebuffed you in the first book, agreed to meet with you down at Mar-a-Lago and your one hour appointment turned into two and a half. So much is interesting there, but I was really struck by this statement that he could commit to a lie in the frame of his body and in the timbre of his voice so fully. Was there any particular thing that you and he discussed that really drove that home? So many things. I think that Phil and I, as reporters, both sort of look a little bit at body language to detect deception. It's something that you 
you don't base a story on, but it's important extra information. And Donald Trump said things to us in the lobby of Mar-a-Lago that evening that have no basis in fact, and that are demonstrably false, and that you would think he has to know are demonstrably false. For example, January 6th, he said this was a loving crowd, lots of hugging and kissing, that the media doesn't show you all the video of the Capitol police officers ushering people into the Capitol. That's just not true. There were small incidents where a a police officer here and there put on a MAGA hat and they were under investigation for the fact that they did that during the early part of the protest. But there was no loving, there was no hugging, there was no warm ushering. There were officers begging for their lives, having heart attacks and being bear sprayed to the point that they could not catch their breath. So Donald Trump saying that he should give you some signs of deception he gave none. From stem, from stem to stern, he looks like a person convinced that this is the fact. There were many other examples, but I'll just use that that's, one. Because- that's really good, really remarkable. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the method of the book. I think it's very hard to write so vividly with a partner. Did you have a particular method where one of you does the first draft and the other does the edits? It really reads like one very cohesive voice. That's nice of you to say, Harry. You know, we collaborated on the manuscript throughout and applied sort of the same method for all of the chapters. And we thought it was really important at the outset of the project to make sure that because we're two different, two different reporters, writers, authors, make sure that the book would have a consistent voice and a consistent sort of pacing throughout. Last question here. He nearly won a second term, going back to the revelations. We got, we must try to understand what made him appealing to so many and what that reveals about the country. So it seems to me we must try to understand that, and we're still groping with that. I wanted to ask both of you your thought about where we stand now and what your personal view is about what made him appealing to so many and what that reveals about the country. There are two things that struck me about all of the people who still reject what we wrote in the book. You know, we're careful reporters. We rigorously corroborated this information. We fact-checked it with Donald Trump himself and with his aides and his spokespeople who were speaking on his behalf. Just one quick interjection is anytime people denied it, you put it in there. You had a little postscript. He says that didn't happen. Unless, just to give an example, unless it was so demonstrably false by video or documentary evidence, things that can't lie. So, but yes, we include where people dispute things, absolutely, including the former president. But people reject this information still. And why is that? Why will they buy snake oil at such a dear cost? The cost being their country fractured public health in such incredible peril. Why are they buying it? And it has to go to the mastery of Donald Trump, which could be the mastery of another president or could be the mastery of Donald Trump when he runs again. And that is tapping into this anger and fear in our country, a very large population, 74 million from what I can see, prefer this presidency to another that has more experience and has more stability. They prefer this for a reason. So what is that reason? And then finally, I think the second thing that's really striking and part of the reason to write the book in the first place is 
many of the people who served Donald Trump told Bill and me that if Donald Trump had been more organized, if he had been more disciplined, if he had had a strategic chess game in his head instead of a daily checkers, he could have truly pushed the democracy off its its rails. And that's also something as a country we need to really brace for and prepare for and think about. The New York Times bestselling book is I Alone Can Fix It by Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker. Carol and Phil, congratulations on the book's success and thanks so much for spending this full episode with Talking Feds. Thank you very much to Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Naus and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Research assistance by Abby Meyer. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Lintman. See you next time.